Welcome to Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Seamus and Taylor. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. How are you? I'm well. Hey, can you guys hear me? I'm at Denver International Airport. I've been skiing for a couple of days and on my way back to LA so I can catch some rain. Nice. <laughs> we have some good interviews. Seamus and I interviewed someone from the BC Grant. Paul Sipowanich, the Director of Programs at the Global Designing Cities Initiative. We were talking to him about how um, Bloomberg can get these grants to sort of medium-sized cities in need of filling these funding gaps for important parts of their uh, bike, bike network. Yeah, perfect. I've got an interview with Greg Limley. Limley's is one of the oldest names in Hollywood, but Greg Limley, who still runs Limley Theaters, is one of the biggest supporters of the bicycle and safe street movements in Los Angeles. And so it was a really nice opportunity to sit down and talk with Greg about his involvement in the bicycle world. Yeah. And then I have president of Friends of Northampton Trails. He recently spoke very persuasively on behalf of a roundabout in Northampton and why we need a roundabout, why they're good. Up first is Lindsay Sturman's interview with Damien Kevin, the founder of Safes. Um, streets are for everyone. Damien had a horrible accident a while ago, and he turned the tragedy of that accident into a safe streets movement. And they are doing a die-in at the Los Angeles City Hall. And Lindsay has an interview with Damien about reaching out for volunteers and people to show up and support safe streets everywhere. Yeah, let's go to that. Great. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Lindsay Sturman, and today we are so lucky to have as a guest Damien Kevitt, who is the executive director of Streets Are For Everyone, which is also known as SAFE. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the quality of life for pedestrians, bicyclists, and drivers alike by reducing traffic cause fatalities to zero. SAFE is organizing a protest for safer streets on the steps of City Hall on Saturday, January 21st at 10 a.m. And we are so lucky to have Damien here to tell us about this big event. Damien, welcome. Thank you for having me on. And, and thanks for uh, giving me a few moments to be able to talk about this protest that's happening uh, in just, just over a week from now. I think anyone who lives in Los Angeles knows and, and can feel it, even if they are not watching the news, that the streets of Los Angeles are becoming more and more deadly. They're getting worse. We actually had the worst year in well over two decades. We broke over 300 fatalities. Uh, currently, it looks like it's 309. That's being double verified. The pedestrian fatalities went up by 19% last year on top of a previous increase the year before. Bicycle fatalities went up 24%. One fatality is unacceptable. But to see that you have 309 lives that were lost, that were entirely preventable on the streets of Los Angeles is not just frustrating, it's wrong that this has been allowed to go for so long. It's not even just that they're increasing, they're literally skyrocketing at this point. SAFE just produced a report on the 2022 fatalities, breaking down what's behind those numbers. Uh, speed is the primary factor, uh, the largest factor in all of those collisions. There's other factors as well, left turns, right turns, cars hitting pedestrians for various different reasons. But speed is the largest factor for those injuries and fatalities that are happening across the city of Los Angeles. And we released this report that it also included demands for our elected officials, that they actually pay attention to this and start doing something. And, and I, I mean, forgive me for being crass, do their job. People are dying on the streets. 
And we're following this up with a protest. And this is not just any protest. This is a die-in on the steps of City Hall. Saturday the 21st, it's going to be a media event. We need as many people as possible to be in black, all black, to lay on the steps of City Hall to show a representation of individuals' lives. And we're going to have 309 white roses that are going to be draped across the people in black laying on the steps to represent the 309 individuals whose lives were lost last year. And we're going to do a press conference and we'll also have victims and advocates, you know, speaking in front of the media. We need people who care. If you are a person in Los Angeles who rides a bike, who crosses the street, who drives a car, this concerns you. And we need to show the government that this is something that we care about and they need to change. This can't just keep going year after year, getting worse and worse. It's such an important issue and it's so solvable. That's why it's so heartbreaking is if we could just slow the cars down. As you say, the factor is speed because if a car is going 10 miles an hour, it doesn't kill people. And if it's going 30, it does. Speed is the issue. Yeah. You know, it's a multifaceted problem. Anyone who's listening to this, of course, can say, well, what about this? And what about that factor? And you're right. Every single one of you, it is a multifaceted problem. The reason I bring up speed is because it is the biggest by stat, but it is just one factor in all of this that needs to be addressed. But if we don't do anything, if we just continue on status quo, then next year it's going to be 325 or 350 lives lost. And then it's going to be 400. And it's just going to keep going up until someone puts their foot down and says enough is enough. And that's what we're doing with this protest. We're saying, hey, we're fed up on this. Elected officials are accountable to the people who elected them, and we want safer streets, and we need to show in mass that that's what we want. Well, Damien, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. We're going to be covering the die-in on the day, so we're really rooting for this, this to be a moment when voters speak up and tell our elected officials who may not fully understand the issue, we really care about it. Yeah, I should tell everyone it's going to be in the morning time on Saturday, so uh, volunteers for the dine would need to be there at 930. This is all in information is all in the link when you sign up in terms of details. And it'll all be done by around uh, 1045 at the 11 o'clock at the latest. It is really sort of um, a visual demonstration and press conference with the media there. And we're going to have a lot of media there. So let's show out in force. That was Streets are for Everyone founder and activist Damian Kevitt with Lindsay Sturman. You can RSVP and learn more about the die-in at mobilize.us slash streets are for everyone and biketalk.org. Now, Taylor Nichols' interview with bike advocacy philanthropist, Greg Lemley. I'm here with Greg Lemley. Is this your first time on Bike Talk, Greg, or not? No, I've been on Bike Talk before. Yeah, that's what I thought. Greg is the Lemley of the Lemley Theaters, and he's a big supporter of the cycling movement that's going on in Los Angeles and, and all over. And so, Greg, welcome to Bike Talk. Good to be back. Can you tell me a little bit about how you support the bike movement? A couple different ways. I was a board member at the time, LACBC, now Bike LA. Right. My wife is on the board of Ciclavia. A lot of our support is personal, either donating ourselves or getting friends, family, and so forth to donate. There is a family foundation that was started in 2000, which has been supporting bike activities. And yeah, there is some support, mostly in-kind support through Lemley Theaters, things like running trailers and trying to promote various bike-related activities. I'm sure you support a lot of other things, but what got you into supporting bicycles? 
Well, it was something I was doing. And at some level, you start recognizing that there is a need for organizations to promote cycling and the health and safety of cyclists and sustainability and equity in all kinds of forms are a big focus for us. Right. One of my favorite stories is I was going to see a movie at the Limley Royal, I think, in Santa Monica. And I had forgotten my bike lock. And so the person at the door allowed me to bring my bike in the theater and leave it there during the screening. So that's also support. <laughs> in a smaller way, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> They're so used to me bringing my bike inside. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Well, and you also screen a lot of bike movies. I think I've seen a couple of cycling films at the theaters over the years. We try and screen them. Bikes First Cars we screened, and there was uh, the Grapes of Wrath, but it was cyclists who were- Oh, Cycling of Wrath or Bike of Wrath. The Bikes of Wrath, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so we screened that as well. And what kind of biking do you do? Are you a spandex biker or are you a round town biker? I started off as a commuter, although riding longer distances had always been something that we did as a family weekend activity or whatever, but that got me to the river ride and then the challenge of riding 50 and then 70 and then 100 miles. And when I started raising funds for LACBC via Climate Ride is when the spandex (laughs) became a little more prominent. Right, right. That's funny because I kind of went the other way. I started in spandex and now I never wear spandex and I ride almost everywhere just in my regular clothes. I mean, look, it's a shame that the two communities, I don't know, I've been out of it for a little while, but seem so opposed to each other. At the end of the day, there's still a lot that they share and we all need to get where we're going on a bike. Yeah. And I think the idea of having to drive to ride is a mistake. You were on the board of LACBC, now Bike LA. How else are you promoting bikes in Los Angeles and Seattle? Mostly by just riding myself and being visible about that. I'm a big proponent of the idea that our cities need to be constructed in a way that allows people to get around without owning the car both because it's financially very difficult and only getting more so. And obviously it's not environmentally sustainable. Just because we own a car doesn't mean that I need to use the car to go a mile or two to go shopping. Right. And your wife also rides a lot. She does. Yes. And I always see you guys together at the events supporting everything. So that's really wonderful, I think. Yeah, that's great. It's something that we can share. And frankly, now with e-bikes, it's even more something that we can share. Yeah, that's a game changer, I think. It truly is. And you're also a supporter of the climate, right? I'm a donor to the Rails to Trails Conservancy, and I read in their magazine one year about this event called Climate Ride, where people could do long-distance rides and raise money for environmental organizations. And it just filed it away in the back of my mind. And I'm sitting at a board meeting and somebody says, oh, by the way, LACBC is now a beneficiary organization for Climate Ride, and Climate Ride California is coming up. Does anyone want to ride? And this was 2013. Kids had gone off to college. So went home, talked it over with my wife. And she says, yeah, you should go for it. You should go for it, not we should go for it. (laughs) At that time, just me. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) So we ended up forming a team, LACBC, and recruiting a few people to ride on that first ride. We did a little contest through the movie theaters where we ended up sponsoring someone to join the ride as well, just to get the word out about the event. And came back from that first ride and really decided to double down on that and recruit more team members, more training, provide support for the team members. And then certainly after a few years, we started looking around at the people that were on Climate Ride and recognizing that like a lot of environmental organizations, it did not reflect the diversity of our country. Right. And that we needed to be a little more proactive in recruiting and making the team look like LA. And how many miles is the Climate Ride? 
At that time, it was about, I want to say, 400 miles in five days from Eureka to San Francisco. Beautiful stretch of road. Not great if you don't like heights. Yeah. (laughs) Challenging riding. Right. Not everybody that signed up was a Bandex rider. Many of them were like I was, commuters who were committed to LACBC and wanted to find a way to challenge themselves physically and experience a different kind of riding and do it in a way that linked cycling to what is arguably the major environmental challenge of our age, which is climate change and center the bicycle as being an agent of fighting that. Right. There's a great quote that says the bicycle doesn't solve any one problem but it is part of a solution to so many problems. And I think that's what's really wonderful about the bike and about using the bike as transportation. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, it's tied in with the environment. It's tied in with economic issues. It's tied in with design issues about our cities. So frustrating to hear people come back from Europe. I loved Europe. I walked everywhere. I rode. I did this, that, and the other. And you want to slap them and say, 50, 60 years ago, those cities were not like that. Right individuals and then communities and collective societies made a decision to embrace the bike, to embrace walking, to embrace public transit. And it makes the cities cleaner and healthier. It makes the citizens of those communities healthier. Right. It makes it livable. Yeah. And it's not that LA isn't livable. (laughs) Right. Define living. Right. So anyway, climate ride and a lot of the things were able to connect people, I think, to those kinds of ideas and hopefully inspire people and also served as a big fundraiser for the Bike Coalition. LACBC was, for all those years, the top fundraising team, raising a lot of money for the organization and raising it in small dollars from people who weren't necessarily cyclists themselves, but they were supporting their friends and co-workers. Well, you know, you said two things just now about being in Europe. I was just recently in Amsterdam for my first time. And it's such an amazing city. I mean, granted, the canals are so amazing. But even when you get out of that area of Amsterdam, the cycle tracks that they have for people to get around on, and you see women and children on bikes all the time, and men in suits and women in heels, and it's just such a lovely way to get around. Then you come back here and you realize the roads are very dangerous sometimes. And even on streets where we have a bike stripe, it's not really a bike lane. It's just a little stripe on the road. You're taking your life into your own hands just to ride downtown to see a movie. Yeah. Well, life is full of risks. Right. And I think we need to put them all in context. I think trying to connect cycling with health is super important because at the end of the day, people who are involved with active transportation, and I'm not talking about recreational cyclists, but even just people who are walking and riding instead of driving a car are ultimately healthier and going to have longer lives. And that's taking into account the fact that, yes, there may be this one extreme example of something that's dangerous, but who says driving a car in LA? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And walking, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned Tour de Lemley. What is that? So Tour de Lemley is something that, again, after that experience with climate ride and longer distance riding and riding with groups, I had the idea of what would it look like to ride in a single day a circuit through all the theaters in LA County. So the first year there were a handful of us that did it. And this was in 2014, I want to see. Yeah, 2014 was the first year we did it. It coincided with the installation of a bike corral. In front of the theater. uh, theater In NoHo on Lancashire Boulevard, which was one of the first bike corrals out in the Valley. Right. And yeah, it's about 135, 140 miles. Of city riding, by the way. Some of it's on bike path, some of it's on bike lane, but a lot of it's just out on the street. And just the idea that, yeah, you can ride from Santa Monica to Claremont and back without needing a freeway. 
There are roads, yeah. in many cases, really great roads and great neighborhoods. And you can better understand how the city is connected when you're not on the freeway. Right, right. Do you uh, serve coffee at the first theater and then popcorn at the middle theaters and then beer at the end of the ride? Well, it's typically done in the summer because we do need the extra daylight to right. complete the ride. And at some point we settled on doing it on the last day of the Tour de France as our day. And invariably it ended up being one of the hottest days of the year. So the main thing I think that we served was access to air conditioning right. about mile 90. Right. People would pull into Pasadena and they would just be fried. Yeah. Well, I hope that you do it again. Are you going to do it this year also or next year? Uh, it fell apart first in 2019 as we sure. were undergoing a real financial crush for the year. And then in 2020, of course, canceled by the pandemic. And right. we have not been able to get it going again, although some of our dedicated climate writers do still get together and do it just on their own. Right. You know, it would be fun to try and recreate that. Yeah, I would do it. <laughs> And more than that, Greg, I'm thankful for you for all the support that you've done for the biking community over the years. Thanks very much for being on Bike Talk. Before we end, is there an email or a Twitter handle or a Instagram handle for Lemley Theaters that you could put out there? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's at Lemley is the handle. I also want to put a pitch in. There was a documentary made about Lemley Theaters. It's called Only in Theaters and website is onlyintheaters.com. Only in Theaters. And you can see it only in theaters. For now. <laughs> yeah. Greg Lemley, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was theater chain owner and bike advocacy supporter Greg Lemley with Taylor Nichols. Now, Seamus Garrity and I interviewed director of programs for the Global Designing Cities Initiative. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bike Talk. I am here with, with Nick and Paul Supawanich, who is the Director of Programs at the Global Designing Cities Initiative. Um, welcome, Paul. Uh, wanted to hear kind of what you're doing and, um, and who you are. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Seamus. Glad to have a chance to be part of the show and to share a bit more about um, some of the work we're doing in cycling, not just here locally, but uh, internationally. And I think to your question just about my my own background, I just would say that uh, I've been in transportation my, my whole life with the focus uh, on cities. I think I got into this as a recovering engineer, as someone who loves solving problems, but, but really was interested in solving problems, but for the benefit of people having a little more time in their day, people getting home safely. And that's how I got started in city planning. I worked as a consultant for a long time, focused on transit, biking, and walking issues. Um, had a chance to work in the mayor's office, uh, tech startup, and, and to what's kind of what's brought me here today. But but as part of those experiences, I, you know, I've always been a cyclist. I've, I've, I'm very proud to say that I've never had an opportunity, a job where I've had to drive or, or even take transit to work, which I which I would like to do it sometimes. But I've always used biking as my main main thing, and that's even as I've had kids uh, finding ways to make sure I can bring them to and from. School. We need it. This is great. So, what kind of um... What kind of a cyclist are you? What, what kind of bike do you have? And, and what kind of riding do you do? <laughs> well, I, I think um, for this audience, I, the kind of the question is like, what's in the stable and, and what has come and gone? Um, I would say that I, I started my early years as the cool, trying to be cool kid, finding my, my 1973 rally competition and converting it to single speed it was my commute bike. But, uh, you know, I could try to dabble in different things. I, I rode... Um, Cross country, actually, I had a chance to ride a cyclocross bike from from Berkeley back to my hometown in Illinois when I was in my late twenties. Uh, I did that on a cyclocross bike. I wasn't quite um, wealthy enough at the time to afford a proper touring bike, 
Uh, I tried, I dabbled at cyclocross. I had a cyclocross bike for a season or two. That wasn't really where my long-term um, trajectory was going to go. I found out pretty quickly. And, and now, you know, I'm, I would say that I'm, I have, I have two young children. And so I, I have those prior uh, bikes still, many of them, but uh, I do have the electric cargo bike uh, as well to, to haul the two kids around these days. And so I do a lot of that. Can you talk about this grant and, and who's available for it, what the grant is called and, um, and what makes a, a winning application? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm happy to jump into that. The Global Designing Cities Initiative, we, we got our start in 2014. So we're not that old of an organization. And you know, our, our mission and kind of where we, our ethos is coming from is that we, we really focus on how streets and cities can, can change the world. Every city's got issues. Every city has things they're trying to solve, things they're trying to resolve. If you're a city and you're trying to resolve issues, you got to look to what do you have at your disposal? Maybe it's not money in any city around the world. Like the streets themselves, the physical space of the streets is the biggest resource a city has. So if you're trying to tackle something, whether it be air quality, whether it be transportation congestion, whether it be public health, uh, streets are a great opportunity to tackle those issues. And so just by way of how we got started in 2014, this is around the time when across the United States, uh, many cities were really taking a look at what New York City was doing and saying, well, well, they're doing all these new things with protected bike lanes and other things. And what was enabling to allow other cities to do that is that someone needed to come out with guidance that said, hey, this is okay. You know, you can try these things. It's not an experiment. This is just the way things can be if you want to get people to bike. And so there was an organization called NACTA, which we were founded from. Uh, that organization is kind of the collection of city departments of transportation. And uh, we were the international experiment to see if we could do the same thing. So we knew at the time, I'd give credit to Jeanette Sadek Khan, who is our board chair, and Sky Duncan, who is, our, who is our executive director, who said, hey, let's take the same idea internationally and say, let's go talk to a lot of cities around the world and see what's really working in terms of how they design their streets and how they are benefiting people. And so we created a document called the Global Street Design Guide, which effectively is a permission slip for cities to say, yeah, you can design for people. You can design and make it easier for bikes, transit, and for people versus just focusing on, on cars. And so that was like a little bit of a prelude to saying why we're doing BC, because I think similarly, we know that in many cities around the world, getting around uh, on bikes solves a lot of things. Uh, it solves the geometric issue of that cars take up a lot of space. It solves the issue of public health where we know people are not physically as active as we want them to be. Uh, we know that generally speaking, cities where there's a lot of people biking and walking and taking transit, they're, they're safer. And so we want all these things to, to happen, but the biggest barrier is, and, and research says, says this, is that, well, people don't feel safe biking. And so if people don't feel safe biking, you can't unlock those other opportunities and rewards. And so mm -hmm. that's a little bit of the, I guess, the origin of this, this program, BC program, the Bloomberg Initiative for Cycling Infrastructure. So Bloomberg Philanthropies, uh, they fund two of our programs. One is focused on road safety. And this one that we just launched last fall in partnership with them is focused on getting cycling infrastructure built. And a bit about the program is that we will be selecting 10 cities. February 3rd, the applications will be will be due. Cities from anywhere around the world that are over 100,000 people can apply. We are focusing on applications from cities, though, because we know that from a delivery of infrastructure perspective, there's a lot of players. But we know at the end of the day, the city needs to be bought on if we want this program to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's where we are right now. And so we've been really um, trying to get the word out about the program, uh, but also to have been trying to make sure people who are interested in this program, their elected leaders, 
um, their state leaders or their equivalent know about, like, this is why we are building this stuff because at the end mm -hmm. of the day, sure, people will want some grant funding. Sure, people will want the technical assistance, but unless they have the political support to say, yeah, I believe in this stuff to change my city for the better, um, mm -hmm. you know, we can't have a successful application. How big is the team awarding grants and, and how many applicants do you anticipate? I'll answer the second question first. So in terms of the applications, still to be determined. We're, they're coming as, as we speak. I will say that we had several hundred cities attend some of our webinars that we had that kind of talked about the program. So we know the demand is there. And I won't just say for the program, but obviously a huge demand for cities that want better cycling infrastructure. And so uh, we'll know the answer to that question here in a couple of weeks when we, when we close, the, uh, close the application period. We'll go through that process of selecting the 10 cities, but we hope to kickstart this program um, by the summertime uh, and select the 10 cities and hit the ground running. What does a winning application look like? So this is really about infrastructure. Like how do we get stuff built that people can use and, and people can benefit? So we're looking to cities to tell us more about, okay, what, what proposals, what big grand proposals do you have for your city if you had uh, infusion of resource from this program, funding, technical expertise? But that looks like, show us and prove to us, like, how is your proposal going to help you actually create a safe, connected network in your city? Mm -hmm. uh, how are you going to make it so that uh, people of all walks of life, all age groups, uh, abilities, uh, how are they going to be able to get around safely by bike? And how is your proposal going to allow that to happen. I think there's a lot of grand plans, great bicycle master plans out there. But something else that I think is unique to this grant is that we're looking for innovative ideas. And that's not necessarily talking about flying bikes or anything kind of technically out there like that. Uh, but we know that the process stuff with this stuff is, is often what is holding us up. So innovative materials that we can use to accelerate the delivery. Are there different ways we can short circuit the process to make sure that we can get this stuff on the ground faster? Uh, so that's a pretty big part of the program. What are the size of these grants? Like, is there a range of, yeah. of, of the award? We're looking at a grant awards between 400000 to a million dollars for up to 10 cities. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that's the financial component of the program. But beyond that, our team who, you know, we pride ourselves, a lot of our team uh, comes from working in local government, uh, designing uh, bike infrastructure, designing street infrastructure. Uh, so they'll be paired up with members of our team who would be supporting them through the course of the, the, the grant program, which would go three years beyond uh, this year. Who gets to apply? Is it, Can it come from a council office? Can it come from a department or does it have to go? It has to be approved by the city. I think you answered your, the, the question actually in, in describing the situation. And, and cities are very differently organized depending where you are in the world. And But generally speaking, I think you, you hit it. I mean, there has to be alignment from the elected representatives of, of that city uh, mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form to say they are the ones that can apply. But of course, we'd be asking to say, well, is it just you or who else needs to be in involved in the city family, so to speak, to make this actually successful? Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, those are the types of things we'd be, of course, looking for and asking as part of the application. This grant, I'm thinking, is to not only reward people who are being innovative in designing bike infrastructure, but it's also to jumpstart the process for people who might be able to use that incentive. That's exactly right. And to think about too, I mean, we're thinking about cities in different parts of the world. So a question that of course will come up is like, well, do we want every city to be the next Amsterdam or, or Copenhagen? And the answer is no. I mean, I think that if we're thinking about cities in Africa that might be starting in a different place than a city in Latin America or a city in North America, uh, we wanna take that into consideration. But something we have been saying is that cities that are willing, that are interested in and in, in committed to, to making that investment uh, to maybe not be 
the equivalent of an Amsterdam, which have taken decades to get to that point, but are ready and willing to be. They want to be the local leader in their own particular region and, and be uh, something of a lighthouse for other cities in that particular part of the, the world. It would almost be easier for some of the smaller cities to apply for these things than for the larger cities, right? So not that Burbank is a small city, but Burbank comes to mind as a city that has lots of potential for a network if it could connect the infrastructure that is already built. I don't know if you're familiar with Burbank or the layout of Burbank, but there is something called the Chandler Bike Path that looks incredible. And it's really not very far from the LA River Bike Path. And then if you know we could connect the LA River Bike Path to other things, you could really, you know, you could get from places deep in the valley all the way to Long Beach on a dedicated bike path. Or Northampton. Yeah, Northampton is beautiful this time of year too. If you're a smaller city, maybe now would be a moment if you hear this podcast, you could apply for one of these grants to um, address maybe some gaps, some funding gaps. I, I would say 100%. Some of our other programs, we work across Latin America, Africa, and Asia with our work at GDCI. And, and many of the smaller cities are the ones that are, in fact, uh, that have that political alignment. Mayor's really interested, eager to try different things. And, and you know, for their own right reasons, trying to elevate their city status so they could someday be one of those bigger, more notable cities. But I, I do think that those cities have, um, many of them are those medium tier cities that um, mm-hmm. can punch above their weight in terms of what they can accomplish. Yeah, like a city that already has um, plans sort of in in the works, but it's about the funding gaps in there. Like they don't know how to get it, um, but they need to be proactive. I think that it can be hard to know about these grants, you know, what, what has been the process of getting the information out to as many people as possible, as many cities as possible. We have worked with a a variety of cities who we have strong connections with, and of course, inform them about this grant opportunity. We do have an advisory committee as part of the program, whose part of their responsibility is to help ensure the word gets out. So, and those are people that know are are well-respected in uh, this space, but also have connections in different parts of the world. I'm talking to you all from within the United States, that we probably expect a lot of our applications will be coming from the Americas, so some combination of North and Latin America. Um, but, but also, too, we just as much want to encourage cities across uh, the Middle East, Africa, Asia to apply. And so we've really uh, tried to leverage the networks that we've had there, parts the members of the advisory committee to reach out to their own networks to mm-hmm. make sure that we get those applications as well. We're looking for innovation, but is there also not this sort of consensus about what a given city should have? If you're a certain size city with a certain kind of climate or geography, then you need X, Y, Z. I think any city we would speak to says there's some need around transportation and there's probably a difference in opinion of like, how do we want to tackle that particular need? And so I think innovation can go come a couple of different ways. I don't think we're necessarily thinking about innovative outcomes. I think we want safe places for people to bike. We want safe places for people to, or, or ways for people to get around the city safely. But a lot of our innovations around like kind of maybe the more the nuts and bolts of how cities work. And so I think that's where we've seen the biggest uh, opportunity for change. So is there a different way we can engage the public that allows us to deliver these things faster? Is Are there, I mentioned materials, are there different things that a city can experiment with that might allow us to do things differently more quickly that in the absence of kind of an outside nudge or an outside set of resources, maybe they couldn't uh, couldn't try or experiment with those things. 
So I think when we talk about innovation, uh, those are kind of some of the things we're thinking about. Not necessarily saying, okay, hey, you, you need to be a new, you need to be the next smart city and to apply for this grant, we expect you to kind of change your priorities uh, to do so. But but at its core, I, I do feel like all cities, whether they know it or not, cycling could play an important part of, of the objectives they're trying to reach. After these grants are awarded, what what will look like a successful um, process and a successful program? What will, when will you guys be giving yourselves pat on the shoulders for a job well done? (laughs) Well, it's going to be a while. We intend for this program to be kind of the start, but hopefully the the start of a longer trend. As far as we know, this is the first kind of international Mm. cycling infrastructure program that at least we're aware of. And so it's it's a finite amount of time, a few years and a couple million dollars for cities feels like it sounds like a lot, but in terms of the, the bigger issue, it's a drop in the bucket. I mean, at the end of the day, I think similar to what I said in terms of what we're looking for, you know, if a city is able to go from zero to connected, safe, accessible cycling network, I mean, that's going to be a win, but like the gradient of what that looks like is going to be different based on where we are. If we're talking about a city who's starting from a very uh, basic place versus a city that's kind of taking their good to great, I mean, what that outcome is going to look like is slightly different. And that's where we're going to spend a little bit of time this summer scoping out to like really sit down with the city to say, okay, you're, you're in this, let's make something happen, but what does success look like uh, for you? And let's measure off of that. Um, what can listeners who share these goals do to learn more and support people who are listening from various cities? They have a short amount of time now. What do they do? I would say this. I mean, certainly if you want to learn about the program, uh, go to our website, our Global Designing Cities Initiative website. Though for the application, one thing that's universally critical is political support. We could drop in on any city and say, hey, we have a great opportunity for cycling. We have a great opportunity to, to help you build a cycling network. But if you don't have the local support and alignment to do that, it's going nowhere. And so I think something that I always tell everybody is to figure out how to be effective as an advocate locally. I mean, I, I will say there, there are far too many people that come with solutions to say, like, this is what I want for my city without understanding, okay, where do the kind of origins of power sit? And who do I actually need to influence and convince them in their own world words to tell them this is something that we want to fix uh, uh, in our city. So that's something that I, I would encourage everyone who's interested in this issue, not just this program, but of course, cycling broadly, uh, to understand where the centers of power are in their city and, and, and figure out how to advocate for this type of work there. Thank you so much, Paul, for spending time with us today. Paul Supawanich from the Global Designing Cities Initiative, Bloomberg Initiative for Cycling Infrastructure Grants. Any cities listening have a few weeks to to get it together. Good luck, everyone. That was Global Designing Cities Initiative Director of Programs, Paul Supawanich with Seamus Garrity. Now, George Kahout, Friends of the Northampton Trails President on a Roundabout. Hey, George. Hello, Nick. How are you today? Good. I'm with George Kahout, and George is the president of Friends of Northampton Trails. And George spoke at a meeting this week in favor of some new infrastructure in town, a roundabout. Do you want to talk about it, George? Sure, I'd be glad to, um, Nick. Uh, again, thanks for allowing me to come on your show today. It's always a pleasure. Um, so I, I live here in Northampton, Mass., which is Massachusetts, a town, a city of about 30,000 people. Um, you know, there's an interstate highway that goes through the city, around the city, and then a couple of major secondary roads. Um, over the past, I would say, 10 years, Northampton has um, bought into this, uh, the concept of roundabouts, 
rather than signalized intersections at busy intersections. Um, just so Northampton currently has three roundabouts in the city. Um, there's a large intersection at the north part of town near a popular supermarket that our Massachusetts Department of Transportation, um, recognizing the crash data over the, the last five years, has really been promoting the idea of, of uh, changing that intersection, improving the safety there. So they came up with uh, uh, a couple of different options three or four years ago, um, a signalized intersection um, and two different kinds of roundabouts. So just for, the, you say they're, they bought into roundabouts. You're pretty knowledgeable about this. I heard you spoke uh, pretty movingly at the meeting. Is that is that true? Yeah, I think you know the the research that I've done and my experience with roundabouts here and in other cities really um, gives me the evidence that there's such a better uh, way of approaching traffic calming at busy intersection than a regular signalized light. Um, you know, there, there are three big benefits of roundabouts. Are, uh, are, the first one is due to the, the nature of the construction and the geometry, cars are forced really to slow down to 15 or 20 miles an hour when they approach a roundabout. And that's done by physically constraining the road, um, gradually uh, curving the entranceways into the roundabout. So it's impossible, really, for any sane driver to go more than 15 or 20 miles an hour. And then all of the traffic is in a one-way rotation around the roundabout. That's, so the biggest thing is cars go slower. So what that means is that if there are any fender benders, if there's any uh, negative interactions with another car or cyclist, it's done at a very slow speed. Um, so the data has shown that um, the accidents decrease with the use of roundabouts. And if there are accidents, personal injury is reduced by about 70 to 80 percent, which is amazing. Um, the second really big uh, benefit of a roundabout is that as opposed to an intersection, there's no car stoppage. There's no idling at a traffic light. There's no jumping those rabbit starts of a car. Um, there's nobody blowing through an orange light or trying to gun their engine. <clears throat> so that's a big benefit in terms of our, our, car, our carbon um, uh, impacts that we want to see. There's less gas used and less carbon emissions when cars are just flowing at a regular speed through an intersection rather than idling. And I would say the third big thing about a roundabout is for pedestrians and bicyclists, um, there is a greater degree of safety because the roads are limited most of the time to one lane. The traffic is when you're a pedestrian crossing a street in a roundabout, traffic is only going one way. So you don't have to look both ways. There's always a, a refuge island in the middle of your pedestrian walkway. So in terms of, uh, um, pedestrians, it greatly improves the safety aspect of that. Those are the three biggest things. The fourth thing, which is maybe particular to Northampton, is the roundabout due to the nature of their construction. There's often an island in the middle um, that cities use for beautification or for sculptures, um, some kind of um, placemaking feature. 
these roundabout service kind of a gateway to a city. So in our situation in Northampton, you're coming down a state highway at 45 miles an hour. All of a sudden, you're slowed down to 15 miles an hour. And unconsciously, I'm saying, oh, my gosh, the nature of the roads have changed here. What's going on? I've got to go slower. And that's what every city wants is for their traffic and the drivers to realize they're in a different kind of travel space. Um, so we're fortunate that in Northampton, these roundabouts at the different entrances to the city serve as that kind of um, physical and psychological gateway um, into the city. So those are the big benefits that I've encountered with roundabouts and really what the, the studies have shown when they've collected data over the past 10 or 15 years. Um, so it it's better for if it's better for pedestrians it's better for and it's better for drivers it's better for cyclists is it is there any particular is there any uh difference i mean is there anything special for cyclists that's 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 an no. advantage <clears throat> yeah um i think for cyclists again you know it depends nick as you know as well as i do we have different there's a continuum of cyclist behavior and cyclists kind of comfort level in riding on city streets. Um, some cyclists tend to really hug the right side of the road and even ride on sidewalks when they can. In those situations, when a cyclist encounters a, um, a road uh, uh, roundabout, they'll probably take to the sidewalk, sidewalk along with pedestrians because they may not be comfortable with the flow of traffic going around in a circle. Those of us who are more comfortable riding in the street, um, because the road narrows as you enter, in, enter into a roundabout, I become a car very easily. I take the lane and I go around in the traffic pattern with cars and I leave the roundabout where I need to um, without engaging in the sidewalk uh, or those kind of uh, pedestrian situations. So, and for a cyclist, it's really good because you don't have to stop at a stoplight. You don't lose that momentum of pedaling through, which is really important for us who, us who are on the road a lot and use our bikes as our main mode of transportation. So that's a big benefit. And again, if I'm dealing with a lot of traffic, the cars are going so slow in the roundabout that it's more easily to avoid an erratic uh, driver behavior and for them to see a cyclist and to slow down. So it's really beneficial for cyclists in addition to pedestrians. So there were people who thought they would, they wanted a traffic light, but when you stood up and spoke, they just <coughs> melted away, right? Like the, they just crum <laughs> they crumbled. Oh yeah. And, and next I'm going to talk about <laughs> some other weighty issues like uh, our uh, drug and rehab situation in America and see if opposition melts away. No, I don't know if they crumbled, Nick, um, but they certainly one of the big um, uh, misconceptions about a traffic light is that it doesn't take any length of time at all to develop, to, to construct that. Um, whereas a roundabout may take, you know, depending upon the complexity of the arteries coming into it, it may take, you know, a year and a half to two and a half years. Um uh, we find, too, that signalizing a busy intersection, there's a lot of construction that's involved in that. Um, you have to trench across the road. You have to develop um, 
um, uh, pediments in order to install the traffic lights. There's a lot of electrical work that goes into it. And not only that, the, the lights are so sophisticated now that the electronics are often backordered, uh, not only due to the pipeline situation, but just because of the, um, the specialization of those traffic signals. So actually to put up a traffic light at a busy intersection, is really very comparable the amount of time of construction and is very comparable to the amount of time it takes to install a roundabout. And here in Massachusetts, we're fortunate, our Department of Transportation are big proponents of roundabouts and the whole safe street kind of culture and approach to roadway design, which has been a sea change for us in the past 10 years. So they've gotten much better in their construction practices and their methodologies of moving vehicular traffic through a construction zone. So it, it's not as big as an impediment and a challenge for businesses um, who might see that impact on their customer flow. Um, and I think that was a big concern of some of the businesses in this area where the roundabout is proposed. But thankfully, a couple of those businesses stood up also and said, listen, I know it's going to have an impact on my business, but if it means there's a reduction in traffic and if it means one, one person is not killed in a, in a traffic fatality at this dangerous intersection, then it's worth all the loss that my business is going to experience. So really appreciate those businesses standing up and saying that to some others who are aghast that... Uh, there would be some kind of loss of their customer flow. Um, the priority of safe streets is just so much more important than the, the, the need to um, get to a store or rush to work or you know uh, have our roads dominated by cars. Was that the main objection to a roundabout is that it takes longer? Exactly. That was the main <clears throat> the main objection <clears throat> that construction takes longer and it'll interrupt my business. Um, and I think those folks now understand that regardless of whether it's a signal signalized um, intersection or a roundabout, it's going to take the same amount of time. Um, and we'll, and the, the, the state, the city will do as much as possible to try to defray that impact. You know, interestingly, in, in our situation, a very unique piece of this roundabout design and discussion is that there's an adjoining landowner who, um, through their own kind of research and then bringing in other um, historians and experts, uh, discovered that there was an indigenous presence there from many, many years ago. I don't, you know, I don't know all the details 10,000 years ago. They did do an, um, an archaeological study of the area, and that stalled the roundabout that had been proposed about four years ago. So they have made an adjustment to the geometry of the design of the roadway and roundabout. So they've moved away from that, um, that historical resource area. Um, so again, they deserve a lot of credit for not bulldozing through with their first proposal, stepping back hearing more from the community and from the Native American uh, um, authorities or, or, or experts and have redesigned the uh, roundabout 
to really reduce the impact to that area. So they're moving around the Native American sites. Yes. They're able to do yeah. that. They're able to move away. Right. And, you know, and part and parcel of a roundabout um, uh, construction like this in many areas is they also improve within a half a mile the pedestrian sidewalks, um, the roadways themselves, the curbing, the sight lines. So there's always kind of a greater um, positive impact on that area when a roundabout is designed. And I think we'll see that in this one. And uh, it will allow people that kind of feeling of safety, whether you're on a bike or, a, or you're walking, to get up to those businesses in this northern part of Northampton. All right. And you can always put art in this island, right? You could put a <laughs> fountain, you could put sculptures. That's a really good point. Yeah. And many islands are used like that. Um, sometimes there are volunteer neighborhood groups that do a lot of plantings, but often it is a piece of art. Um, the, the roundabout islands are constructed now so that those 18 wheelers can get around them and, and their wheels are allowed to go on part of the island because it's a slope construction. Um, so they don't get hung up on granite curbing and yet they do stay away from a sculpture or any plantings that are there. Um, so it, it is, and we all appreciate that um, to see that in, in any roadway that we travel. Well, thanks for speaking up for this, George. Yes. Joe, no, that's about it, Nick. And, and thank you very much for, uh, for, for doing this work on Bike Talk. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for people to hear about different um, bicycle infrastructure developments around the country and attitudes and, and how bit by bit we're trying to change um, some of the attitudes of people in cars and people who help develop our roadways. So it's a real important work that you're doing. All right. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Adios, Nick. That was George Cahout, president of Friends of Northampton Trails. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.
coração, papai Oh, catch yourself a bag. Oh, catch yourself a bag.